we're going to be talking, we're going to be in Isaiah 1 this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about um, authentic faith and worship, and as I was preparing, I was reminded of a story um, from one of our students. We uh, had a student who grew up in Louisiana, was really kind of dedicated and devoted and um, involved in his youth group. He was a really sharp student, gets admitted to a university in the Northeast, really elite institution. It's kind of torn trying to decide, is this a good move for me, is this not? And he decides to pull the trigger and go, uh, even though it's an environment that will be totally different from his home. Um, well, he goes and he lasts one semester, kind of burns out, comes home, and he lands at Samford. And uh, this past year, so this would have been his sophomore year, um, we're driving back from lunch, and he just kind of opens up and says, man, I, I've just been struggling so much with like, why did that semester even take place? Like, why did the Lord allow me or bring me, you know, to a place where I'm only going to last one month? And I just wanted you to know I was uh, reading the Bible the other day, and I was reading Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, and I feel like I just saw myself. I am that elder brother in that story. Because when I got to the Northeast where Christianity wasn't the norm, and there was no one applauding my godly behavior, all my motivation ceased. And I realized I was doing, the reasons for the way I was living had nothing to do with who the Lord is and how I want to honor him. It had everything to do with what I want people to think of me. He said, I think the Lord brought me there to reveal that. And it was one of those you know, moments where it just uh, reminded me that our students are dealing sometimes with the first, for the first time or in a new way with life's big questions. Who am I? What do I believe? Why am I doing the things I'm doing? Why am I living the way I'm living and it's a huge privilege to be on campus uh, as a minister and to help students process those questions. And the only reason I'm there and the only reason RUF exists is because churches like Faith make that possible. So again, just wanted to tell you all, thank you so much for the ministry you allow on, uh, on campuses. Like I said, we're going to be in Isaiah 1 this morning. Your programs say something different. That's my fault. Um, but we're going to be in Isaiah 1 this morning. And I want to introduce the passage to you uh, by way of an experience I had shortly after college. I graduated from Ole Miss, uh, got a chance to do a little bit of traveling, and I was in Siem Reap, Cambodia. Uh, and if you know anything about Siem Reap, uh, it's really only famous for one thing. Uh, Angkor Wat is there, the famous temple ruins. Uh, they're one of the seven wonders of the world. And I, was, I remember being in my hostel and being excited to kind of see the temple ruins, and I'm talking to other travelers that are in the hostel, and they're all kind of saying the same thing. Well, if you're going to go, you have to do it right. And doing it right means you have to get there before sunrise. So I thought, I'm in. I'm in. So for like, you know, 14 cents, I rent this like beach cruiser bicycle. And feeling half mad, I pull out of my hostel at 4.30 in the morning, pedal like four miles away, uh, show up at what appears to be kind of the main entrance to this giant compound of ancient temples, um, show up, and it, frankly, is just chaos, like utter, utter chaos. There's hundreds of people, it's hot, there are zero street lights, no one can tell who's who, parents are looking around trying to figure out, is the child I'm holding my child, or is it someone else's child who thinks I've stolen it? Um, and so we're all shuffling along, and I just remember kind of laughing, being like, I have no idea where I am, no idea where, where I'm going. Uh, it was just chaos, and everyone kind of stopped and congregated in this random grassy patch. And then all of a sudden, light breaks on the horizon. 
and there's this gold blue glow that kind of shoots across the sky. Everyone goes silent because what emerged was the silhouette of the main temple structure. Massive, sitting right there in front of us. And as minutes passed, that structure became more and more and more visible. And one of my favorite moments was I remember looking at it, and then as the sun kind of crept up in the sky, turning around and realizing that though I felt like I was on the outside of the temple looking in, unbeknownst to me, in the darkness, I had wandered through a gate, over a moat, along a path, past different ruins, and I was actually standing inside the temple grounds. Contrary to what I thought, I felt like I was on the outside looking in. I was actually on the inside of this giant compound. And when we open up Isaiah 1, we find something similar going on. It's chaos. There's all kinds. It's a hard passage. There's all kinds of um, unhelpful things going on. And as we read, the Lord's solution just becomes more and more and more clear. And what we find is that the Lord's solution for the nation of Judah thousands of years ago, isn't something that we stand on the outside of looking in. We are actually caught up, swept up in a part of God's solution too. We're in the middle of this passage. We're not on the outside of it. So if you would turn with me to Isaiah 1, and, uh, and we'll begin. Isaiah 1, starting in verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah, and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate. It is overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left, like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek oppression. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet... 
they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the Lord, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this church. Thank you for um, this text, Lord. I pray that you would give us eyes to behold what your word describes, hearts to receive, um, and hearts to appreciate and trust in you. In your holy name, amen. Well, there are really two things we want to discuss, and this passage kind of strikes me as one of those that somehow is equally challenging and then incredibly encouraging. So we're going to look at, there's really just kind of two categories of this long passage, and it's this, our rebellion and God's intervention. We're going to look at our rebellion first, and one of the things we first see is that whenever the Lord ceases to be the object of our greatest affection and the source of our hope and peace, that never happens in isolation. It always has ripple effects that spill out into other areas of our life. There are vertical repercussions and there are horizontal repercussions. Let's consider the vertical repercussions first. On a vertical level, what we see in our text, the thing that the Lord goes to time and time again, is that when we rebel, our worship inevitably, unavoidably, becomes hollow. It becomes very insincere. And one of the most alarming things in this passage, we tend to think, well, if, if things spiritually or things in the church aren't going well, that must mean it's a hard time, you know, uh, for society as a whole. There must be war or something going on. No. One of the alarming things in this passage is that leading right up to it, it's just been a great period of peace and, pro- and prosperity. And in some ways, like we might hope, the result in the nation of Judah is that there's lots of kind of religious feasts and festivals, um, all kinds of meals and sacrifices and services that are taking place. And so the issue isn't one of degree. God's problem isn't, are you doing enough? It's an issue of kind. In the midst of all this religion that's taking place, is any real worship actually occurring? God's not worried so much with uh, just how much and how often. He's saying, what's behind all the stuff that is taking place? What we find is that in the midst of this uh, time of peace and prosperity and wealth and comfort, God has gotten very small. He's gotten so small that he's hardly worthy of their worship. And I know for me at least, a key diagnostic question to my spiritual health lies right there. In a moment of honesty, do I find the Lord to be worthy of my worship? Does he actually correspond, does the God I know correspond to some of the lofty things that I might pray or some of the uh, elaborate things that I might sing in a worship service? Is the God I know, does he correspond to those things or is that kind of the routine that I simply find myself in? There is a very constructive uh, scene that takes place in Revelation 5 where the Apostle John, I don't know how this works, but he actually gets to see straight into the throne room. And what he sees is in Revelation 5 are thousands and thousands of angels, a host of elders, and they're saying one thing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. In the next verse, with that, 
all the living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down, and they worshiped. Why did they worship? Because they found the Lord to be worthy of that worship. And in a culture and in an area that is filled with religion, a helpful question might be, do we find the Lord worthy of our worship? And all I, maybe the only thing I really want to say on this point is this. Um, I know for me, this question makes me so thankful that God gives us healthy churches. Because I know that God to me can become as small, as fast for, as it can for anyone. And it's the church. And it's rubbing shoulders with people that are my age and older and younger that reminds me why the Lord is indeed worthy of my worship. It's in conversation with peers and people I look up to when I hear how the Lord is at work in their life, or better yet, how after all these years, why after all these years, do you still find him worth following? That is where our faith is strengthened. That is where we are reminded. That is where we are uh, explained. Why is the Lord worthy of our worship? We can be thankful for the church. So on a vertical level, we have rebellion that's resulting in really insincere worship. Uh, worship has become hollow, and there's, there's a lot going on. It's just there's not uh, a lot of sincerity that's behind the activities taking place. But we also find that rebellion takes place on a very horizontal level. And what we find is that uh, despite the commandments being extremely clear, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, we actually grow quite apathetic to the needs around us when the Lord gets demoted. If you look in verse 17, what we find is that when we cease to behold the Lord as the object of the one we love the most, it's actually really hard to love his people very well. Look what verse 17 says. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. And we kind of pause and think, what is seeking to do good? He explains, Pursue justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. In other words, be a people who in a broken world are attentive and compassionate to the many needs that are, surround, that are around us. And one of, the reason, one of the reasons that Judah's toleration of mistreatment would have been so outrageous, and the reason the Lord is so fired up, is because who were Judah's ancestors? They were the ones who knew mistreatment firsthand. 400 years of slavery in Egypt. If anyone should know and should care and respond sensitively to mistreatment, it should be this people. In Romans 6, Paul lifts that to another level and says, frankly, that's the family story of every Christian. Because every Christian knows that at one point we were held slaves We were held captives. We were under the domain of sin were it not for the Lord's gracious redemption. And so the point that's being driven home here is if anyone should be sensitive to the needs around us, it should be Christians. There are a lot of ideas flying around right now uh, about uh, justice and mercy and that kind of thing. There are There are passages in Scripture that make that uh, pursuit simplified for us. I think one of the best 
is in Exodus 3, where God comes to Moses. You remember, there's the burning bush, and he comes to Moses, and it's him responding to all the cries that have been given up uh, while his people have been in slavery in Egypt. And this is what he says. Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob, meaning I've never left you. I've been with you and your ancestors all this time. Then he says this. I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come to deliver them. I have seen, I have heard, and I understand. When we think back to moments in our life where there might have been acute suffering, is that not precisely what we longed for? Someone who was willing to see, someone who was willing to listen, and someone who could really understand. That is the God that we find in Scripture, a God who sees, a God who listens, a God who understands. And as a people who have uh, received that kind of love, we now engage the world in that same way. We see, we listen, we seek to understand so that as we engage, we do so wisely. So there's, there's kind of one central problem that's taken place here, and it's that God has become small. And it's made worship very insincere. And it's made relationships on a horizontal level be somewhat apathetic. The good news is, for the nation of Judah and for us today, God really is good. And we're about to see that. We don't have to manufacture uh, reverence or awe or um, sincerity with worship. Knowing him will uh, inevitably produce that. But then secondly, when we know him, we can't help but be more caring about the needs around us. Verse 18 uh, just puts this in high definition. Given the rebellion that's going on, uh, the way God intervenes is just frankly stunning. Because we've seen all that's taken place. And what we expect in God's response is what we see in the world. What we see in the world is uh, someone gets offended and now it's their right to then pay that person back. What we expect is revenge. And we actually get the exact opposite. Look at the beginning of verse 18 with me. Come now, let us reason. So far from just barging in and detailing, here's the punishment that you're about to receive. Here's the payback that you're about to get. We actually get an invitation And the more remarkable thing is when we stop and think, who's the invitation coming from? When we offend someone, isn't it often ourselves, like the offender, that kind of feels like, oh shoot, I I need to pursue that person and see if we can possibly work this thing out. It's so rarely the person that gets offended who reaches out and says, I really want peace to be restored here. And that's exactly what God does in verse 18. He then explains what action he's going to take And it's a 180 from what we often see in the world. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Our English translations can't quite pick up um, what is unique about these terms. 
crimson and scarlet. If you look in the, in the Hebrew text, they're actually not colors, they're dyes. Uh, they were dyes that would have been used uh, when you're making fabric and clothes, and there were kind of two things that were uh, extremely important and profound about these uh, two dyes. One, they were really pronounced. Like when you, when you used them, and if they touched clothes, it was blatant and obvious. They were deep, rich colors, and they could stain anything. Um, there was no color that they wouldn't show up on. But the second thing is this. They were permanent. And so if you were dealing with these dyes, you had to be incredibly careful because if it touched something you didn't want it to touch, there was no way to get it out. And compassionately but carefully, God is saying, that's our sin. It's glaring obvious, and there's nothing you can do on your own to fix it. And then he comes with the glorious news that he's not only uniquely able to deal with it, he wants to deal with it. He's willing to deal with it. It's his desire to deal with it. It's his desire to fix it. And this just becomes crystal clear. When he sends his son, Paul can summarize it in one sentence. He can summarize the whole mission of Christ in one sentence. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. In Christ, God was not reckoning to men their trespasses, meaning he's not giving people what they deserve. He was instead reconciling the world to himself. And that's profound news for us today because if this is God's desire thousands of years ago with a wayward nation called Judah, and it's his desire hundreds and hundreds of years later when he sends his son, it's undoubtedly his desire towards us today. Shortly after my wife and I got married, uh, we got the privilege to visit some of her cousins who live in California. Um, and they live in San Diego, and I was really excited. I hadn't spent much time at all in California. And so shortly after we get married, we jump on a plane, go out there. And one of the most uh, enjoyable things about, uh, or the, maybe the most humorous thing about visiting this family is that they just shatter every stereotype of California. Like just all of them. Their favorite hobby, you know, you think in California, environmentalism, that kind of thing. Their favorite hobby, they have these dune buggies this is not an exaggeration, with Corvette engines in them, and they take them down to these deserts on the border of Mexico, and they just go nuts uh, on the sand dunes. So, of course, we had to do it. Um, so we load up, we drive, and they're kind of like uh, motorhome type thing out to this desert, and we arrive, and I, like, I don't know how else to describe it other than it was like, for a kid who grew up in Alabama, it's like something out of Aladdin where I push open the door and I set foot on this sand and just as far as the eye can see is this beautiful gold, smooth as silk, fine sand. And the dunes aren't like what we see on the beaches around here where they're maybe five or ten feet tall. There were peaks that were so tall that when we climbed them on these dune buggies, you had to like actually plan out how you were going to navigate it. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet tall. It was stunning and beautiful. And then we destroyed it all in our dune buggies. Um, just utterly wreaked so much havoc that it, I, it just it almost felt terrible. Um, well, we go crazy. We cut ruts in these huge uh, you know, dunes and top these peaks and 
throw sand all over the places, and the areas where the sand is kind of shallow, we turn up the dirty sand that's underneath it, and, you know, you kind of finish the day and look back and be like, wow, that was really exhilarating, but we just really destroyed this place. Um, We're pulling out the next morning, and I'm riding uh, in the front seat with the father, and just as we kind of uh, come around with the full desert in view, he said, Walt, do you want to know why I think the desert's perfect? I was like, yeah, I'd love to know why you think a desert's perfect. He said, because no matter how hard you ride in a day, no matter how much havoc you wreak, you go to bed, you fall asleep, the wind blows, the sand resettles, and you push the door open the next morning, and it's like it was never touched. And sure enough, I'm looking at these peaks, and just as he said, there's not a trace that we had been there. It's smooth as silk once again. The, the dunes are as tall as ever. It's majestic and beautiful like it had never been touched. God comes to us in this text. He comes to us in Christ as the one who takes that which is unsightly in our lives. That which we've torn up. That which is jagged and marred. And with one gust of mercy, he smooths it over like it's never been touched before. And that's why we come to this table each Sunday. Because when we hold bread and wine, and someone says, this is the Lord's body broken for you. We realize that God's mercy isn't just floating abstractly out there. No, as real as the bread and the wine are in our hands, so real It's his mercy for us. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the ways that it uh, acts as a mirror and lets us see who we are. And thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us standing in front of the mirror. But you actually give us a solution for the things that Uh, we're ashamed of or that we've broken. Lord, help us to trust and help us to believe uh, in your love and your grace for us, we pray. Amen.